thanks for being here this morning. It is the first Sunday of the month, and as a general practice here, we take communion on the first Sunday of the month. I am uh, I have the sermon this morning as well, and really I'm using uh, the title of the sermon as the template for our, our little uh, prep of communion here, and using communion as the introduction to the sermon. So it's it's that. Have you ever seen that painting of the hands that are drawing each other? You know, it's one of those things where like we're using both and here. So the sermon is titled "What We Share in Christ," and when we stop to ponder what we share in Christ. If I wanted to, I could have made this point number one. I'd just bump everything else down, entitled this, this that, that in Christ we share a memory. That as we come to the communion table, we receive an inherited practice. That practice is instituted in several places in the Gospels, but I'm going to read to you out of Luke chapter 22. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Christ, in this moment, in the upper room with the disciples, gives them a new thing to remember, but because it is the new covenant, he immediately ties it to a long memory of God's people that has already existed before. We are the people who inherit this ordinance in the new covenant. The new covenant that is the conclusion of the old covenant. The God of creation who has revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament, is the God who is found most clearly in the person of Christ. And as we gather with a shared memory, we do so to remember the faithfulness of our God that we see most clearly through Jesus. He has been faithful many other times and in many other instances, but it is in the person of Christ that we go, if I was ever confused about any other moment, right there I can see it. So as we come to the communion table, we do so with a shared memory. But if we take the other aspects of that title of this sermon, what we share in Christ, it helps us think a little bit deeper. First, it is in Christ that we are able to approach communion. It is in Christ. We practice an open communion, which essentially means if you are a believer, we invite you to participate. And if you're not, we encourage you, ask of you to let the elements pass by. And the reason we do that is because everyone who is in Christ who's been saved and redeemed, is encouraged, brought in, and reminded of what we have in Him. It is not what we earned on our own. It is through His sacrificial life, death, and resurrection that we have received the salvation that is not of our doing, but of God's. And so it is only in Christ that we are able to come to the communion table. There is no other way that you are able to approach. If you hold those elements in just a moment, you do so by the power of the resurrected Lord 
who enables you to remember rightly. It is in Christ. Then third and finally, if first we share this common memory and second that is through and in Christ, we have to recognize that the, the pronoun there is plural. It is something that we share. It's not something that I have in Christ, although that is true. Rather, it is something that we have in Christ. That there is no such thing as individual communion. You go through and read your New Testament, communion is only talked about in terms of when you gather. It's not during your morning devotions that you stop and pull out the, the bread and the wine to be reminded. It is when you gather as the body of Christ. So it's important that we understand it is not just something that is created out of thin air and new. No, this is in a long-standing memory of a faithful God that we receive. And we don't just receive it out of nothing. We didn't find it on the side of the road. It was through the incredible work and labor of Jesus Christ that we are able to receive this new covenant. And it is not just on our own that we receive it. Rather, it is with all of His people. We share in Christ the memory of a salvation given to us by God. And that is how we are able to approach the table. With immense amount of thanks for what God has done for us just to enable us to be here, to remember rightly. And so I encourage you to do so this morning, to remember to think as far as your intellectual faculties will allow you to. Ponder what it means, what it took for you just to be saved, for that salvation to be sustained, and then not only for that for you, but for that to be extended to all who are in Christ. Think about it deeply. Confess any sin you need to to be able to remember rightly, and then as the elements come, we partake together. So at this time, the deacons are going to pass out the elements. Kendrick is going to play through while you guys are passing those elements around. And I'll reel you back in at the end to partake of the Lord's Supper together.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. As I said, that was the introduction to the sermon, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to just right away, we're reading the text. Philippians 4, starting in verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I had left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, it is an immense privilege to come to the communion table to be reminded of who we are in your Son, Lord. I pray that we would not miss that, that, that you would press that truth in upon us and our thinking, and we would see our whole identity through that lens. And as we come to your word now, Lord, we ask for a sanctified imagination to hear and receive and obey. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we're closing up our study in the book of Philippians. This is the last section that we are going to work through here this morning. And it's, it's not quite the, uh, the travel log closings that sometimes, you know, where, where you get to the end of the book and you're like, how are you supposed to preach that? I don't really know what to do. It's not one of those. So I, I have a little more substance to the close of this book than sometimes epistles normally offer. So I'm grateful for that. And uh, we really have a, a reminder of what the whole book has been about. 
that we have this great inheritance in Christ, and that is going to cause us to think and live and behave in a certain way. So in some ways, this is a a clear summation, although there are some specifics here uh, that we'll get to look at. Three things I want to ponder this morning on what we share in Christ. First, we share a ministry. Second, we share an inheritance. And third, we share an ultimate goal. First, we share in Christ, we share ministry. Paul reminds them of this in at least two different levels. First, there's, there's the global church that Paul wants to make sure they don't miss. Philippi, if you don't know, is in Macedonia. It's, it's a Greek city. And I don't know how the, the tensions went in those day and age, but I'm guessing there were still those who remembered or at least had heard stories of the time when Greece was the dominant power in the world. Right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Alexander the Great had conquered all the way to India, and it was literally the Macedonians who were on top of everything. And so when Paul comes at them and says, hey, I just want you to know, greet every saint, and then he, uh, there's like a wink and a nod, especially those in Caesar's household. And you're like, oh, those stinking Romans, are you kidding me? The Roman, you want me to greet the Romans? And Paul is, is pointing out to them quite forcefully that you are a part of a global church. You don't just share in the ministry that happens here in your local body. You share in the ministry that goes across the world. I don't know, I was trying to think of what the equivalent would be, right? It'd be almost like, at least if the approval ratings are accurate, saying like, the saints from Congress send their regards, you know? And you'd be like, yeah, okay, well, they can keep their regards, you know? I don't really care. It's that type of thing. And, and Paul is reminding them, no, 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 you have an identity in Christ that supersedes all of these political tensions. You are a part of a global church that knows nothing of our human tribal boundary lines. Caesar's household says hi. All of the saints greet those who are with you. Those who are with me say hello. Don't miss the fact. And we, church, we need to be reminded of this as well. Do not miss the truth that you and I are a part of a global church. As great and glorious as this place is, and we'll look at the local church in just a moment, we get to partake in the global work of the gospel. Don't have too narrow of a view of what God is doing or can do. We are part of a global church. Have a bigger view than just what happens here. Paul is a a church matchmaker. And sometimes we are able to do this at the global level better than like the regional level or even the, the, the just a little bit wider than local level. Right? We have, we're, we're grateful for Christians in China, but Christians in Bluffton are like we, you know, like sometimes there's a little bit more tension. There's a little more competition in our evangelical world there. I have to remind myself of this. I, you've probably never made a, much note of this, but it's something that I work into. How I pray at the beginning of this, or try 
fairly regularly to include in our prayer before we turn to the Word a prayer for other churches in our city, for friends that we have here. I want us to be reminded that it is not just here that the Word of God is proclaimed and that we long for the Spirit to work. God works in ways beyond Headwaters Church. Aren't you glad? And so don't miss that, that the shared ministry that we have in Christ is global. But also, that shared ministry is local. There is a global church, but there's also a local church. And here you see in verses 15 to 18, Paul reminds this Philippian church, like this local fellowship of believers, you shared in this work with me. You yourselves know at the beginning of the gospel, right? Right when the gospel is first being proclaimed, you entered into a partnership with me. If you remember this story, it comes out of Acts chapter 16. Paul wants to go into Asia. He's in Turkey, right? Turkey's this like bridge between Europe and Asia. You gotta, it's a right or left kind of moment. Which way are you going to go? And Paul plans on going east, going into Asia, and the Spirit of the Lord turns him to Macedonia. He, he stops Paul from going where he thought he wanted to go and instead redirects. And so Paul gets on a boat, he crosses the Aegean Sea, Aegean, whatever, however it's pronounced. He crosses the sea, he ends up in Macedonia. And he comes to the first major city, Philippi. And it is in Philippi there that we have a couple of famous stories. You have Lydia being converted, and then Paul and his uh, compatriots there, Silas and Timothy, are walking around, and they are being followed by this demon-possessed girl who's crying out. And so they exercise the demon, they cast the demon out, and the owners of that slave girl are not happy because she made them a lot of money. So they have these men beaten and thrown in prison. It is at this point you have the famous story of the Philippian jailer, right? Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're in the jail praying and singing songs. And the Spirit comes and an earthquake happens and the doors are thrown open. And the jailer was asleep and he wakes up and he's, he's terrified. And he's about to kill himself because it's a capital punishment for a prison guard to lose a prisoner. And Paul says, we're still here. Wait, don't do that. And the guy's blown away. What is going on here? Right? I can't... What, what do you have that I don't? And he asked them that famous question. What must I do to be saved in Acts 16.31? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. From that point on, they are released from prison and they stay for a little while encouraging the brothers and the sisters in Philippi. And then they move on through the rest of Macedonia. So actually, let's just flip there. It's very quick. We'll go to Acts chapter 17. What happens after that? promise this is relevant to what we're looking at in Philippians 4. So if you get, uh, if you're using a chair Bible, page 926, if you get to the last verse of chapter 16, verse 40, so they, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now 17, verse 1, now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So they go through three different Greek cities, and they're in Thessalonica for a little while. They're proclaiming there, and it gets a little bit heated in Thessalonica. 
They're looking for them. They drag the guy who's, uh, they're staying at his house. They drag him out and they, they're holding him accountable. So they sneak them out. In verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They, they sneak them out of the city in the night. They're in Berea for a little while, right? These are the ones who examine the scriptures. They're there. In verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned uh, that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained. Those who were conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him soon as possible, they departed. So Paul leaves Macedonia, which is this province in the north of Greece, and he goes south to Athens, and he gets away from all of these frustrated Jews who are angry at his proclamation of the gospel. So if you remember, right, he's starting to go to Europe, or, or excuse me, Asia. The Spirit of the Lord turns him to Europe. He crosses over the sea into Greece. He lands in Macedonia. He goes to Philippi. He then hits four other cities. Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and Berea, and then he goes on out of Macedonia to Athens. So when we get to Philippians 4, sorry, I, that's the, the, the needed backstory to understand what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4. This group of people knew that. They were very well aware. What he is telling them, what he's reminding them of, is that they supported Paul right away. They jumped in, they received the gospel as a small local church, and they began supporting the ministry without hesitation. In fact, you were giving, at, uh, uh, verse 15 of Philippians 4, when I left Macedonia, right, so when he leaves to go down to Athens, no church had entered into partnership with me, giving and receiving, except you only. So first, they're the only ones who are giving. And then you see in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Thessalonica is about a day's walk from Philippi. He hadn't even gotten one day away before they were sending him support. So what Paul is doing here is reminding this small group of Philippian believers, you have shared with me in the work of the gospel. We have a common ground, a shared ministry. They supported Paul when no one else did. They supported Paul first. This, by the way, is in the, uh, the we sections of the book of Acts. So the, Luke is the one who's writing the book of Acts. And there are sections where he talks about Paul and he talks about they. This is during one of the we sections. So Luke is with them. He has very good recall. He is a first-person encounter, right? This is an eyewitness account. He knows exactly where they went and how long and what they did. And it is in that period of time where Paul looks at these Philippians and says, you gave to me first. You supported me right away. Thank you, right? You know, Philippians, you've been with me in the gospel. So what do we need to note here? A few things. First, it is good for Christians to support those who are in full-time ministry. I know I, I, I will do my best not to dwell here. This is a, a perilous point because it's fraught with a, uh, a potential for me to have a conflict of interest, right? 
I am one of those people. I'm a pastor. I get paid to work here. I don't want you to suggest, uh, uh, hopefully it will be abundantly clear by the time all this is done. We are not here for money. If we were here to try and make money, we'd have done things very, very differently. There's ways churches can make money. I don't know if you know that. You can, you can do that very easily. And I'm stealing from later in the sermon. But if you don't want to give, I don't want your money. I'm not interested in it. We're not interested in it. Keep it. It's yours. I don't want you to give anything that you don't want to give. I'm not, I'm not here to try and make money. I just want you to know that out at the beginning. That being said, it's in my text, so I need to bring it to you. Church, it is good for you to support those who are doing the work of the ministry. That is a good thing on several accounts. First, it keeps you from being selfish, doesn't it? It keeps you, right? That's what Paul is reminding these Philippians. You weren't just consumed with your own well-being and concerns. I was a day away and you were already helping me. You were so worried about someone other than yourself that sounds familiar, you should go back to chapter 2 and hear that, that selfless mind of Christ that you're supposed to have. You were so caught up with that that you were sending support right away. And so church, I, I tell you at a personal level, if you are not supporting your pastors or your missionaries, you are missing out on a spiritual blessing in your own life. You're missing out on a means of grace that God has given to us to keep us from being too consumed with ourselves. There's a famous story of Sam Houston. He was once the president and then the governor and then a senator of Texas. And he got saved later in life and he was a wealthy man and he started paying his local pastor's salary, half of his local pastor's salary. And someone asked him why and he said, my wallet was baptized too, wasn't it? And it's that type of idea. I, I can't keep this faith in all of my life and stop at my pocketbook. I am holy Christ's, and it is a great joy to support those who are doing the work of the ministry. But you'll notice it's not just good for you at an individual level and keeps you from being too selfish. It also supporting those who are in full-time ministry, is directly supporting the gospel. What do we see in verse 17? It's not that I seek the gift, Paul. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul longs for the gospel to go forth. And as the Philippians support his missionary endeavors, they are sending the gospel forward, and they are gaining in credit. So, once again, let's go back to this. If, if when you give, we don't pass around a plate anymore, so I don't even know, the, the metaphorical plate, if when the metaphorical plate is passed and you begrudgingly put the dollar in because you're looking at it and you're thinking that is less, that is in my account, you're viewing it from the wrong angle. What Paul is doing, he looks at this group of Philippian believers and he says, what went away in your earthly bank account multiplied tenfold in your heavenly account. I, I am grateful that you gave to me, not because I needed the gift. I'm grateful because you're increasing your credit in heaven, right? This is exactly the, the Matthew chapter 6, this store up treasures in heaven idea. The Philippians are giving gifts that subsidize the gospel work, and that brings great impact to the kingdom of God. 
And then third on this, don't, don't be deceived. Not only do, does them giving help keep them from being too selfish and does it directly support the gospel, but if not, that's not convincing to you in and of itself, verse 18, it is pleasing to God. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. I've received the gift from Epaphroditus, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So again, church, when you keep yourself from giving, you deny pleasing God with your finances. You miss out on spiritual joys. Do not neglect the joy of funding gospel ministry. I don't know if you've helped supported a missionary to throw that magnet up on your fridge and be excited about the work that they're doing. To send friends and laborers around the world, sometimes ones that you know very well, some that you've never met in your entire life. What a joy it is to use our abundance for God's glory. You've got abundance. By global and historical standards, all of you have abundance. And what great joy it is to give our abundance purpose. One last little thing here before we move on. I want want you to notice how Paul praises the Philippians. He doesn't just praise the people. You did this all on your own, way to go, right? It's not, it's not a, he's not leaning out over the edge of flattery, which happens. You've, you've all encountered that person who's just a little too over the top with their gratefulness, right? Like, I, I think it's actually flattery at this point. So he doesn't just praise the people, but he also doesn't just praise God, which removes the human agency. Once again, Paul, as he does almost everywhere and as the whole Bible does, is going to combine divine work and human agency right together. This is pleasing to God, and you did it, right? If you flip back to uh, chapter 1, you'll look, I thank God in my prayers and my remembrance of you. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. So he doesn't just say, good job, you guys doing the gospel. He doesn't just say, God is working. He combines both of them. I thank God for your work in the gospel. It is both and. Do not miss the fact that God is working through you and I in our gospel endeavors. Don't try to separate them out. You should want to rely on God and you should be proud and be able to uh, name good gospel work and others. Human agency and divine sovereignty have a tangible combination. Keep them together as best as you possibly can. He thanks God when he remembers. All right, point number two. In Christ, we share an inheritance. First, we share a ministry, right? That the desire to support, the desire to work. And that sacrificial desire to support ministries, it's a mark of the indwelling spirit. But it's not just that we share that outward work, we also share an inheritance in Christ. 
It's almost like for Paul, he mentions generosity and he instinctually is reminded of God's generosity. He like can't do anything but immediately turn to, well, wait a minute, I said something about being generous, so let me remind you about what Christ has done. Don't miss it. Don't miss this. The ultimate gift giver should not be apart from any sentence on giving gifts. So he gets to verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, both physical and spiritual blessings are in the scope here, right? He's been talking through everything physical, right? You, Philippians, you've been supporting me. You supported me well. As soon as I was gone, I was the first church to support me. Thank you for your material support. But then he shifts over to God, and God's going to supply every need. There is, without a doubt, a physical reality here, and we should recognize that, right? That's in Matthew chapter 6. You you remember that portion of the Sermon on the Mount? The the birds don't, don't sow and reap, and God feeds them. Aren't you more important than the, right? Look at the lilies of the field. They, they don't worry about how they're going to be clothed, and yet Solomon in all of his splendor cannot hold a candle to those little flowers out there. God will take care of you. God will take care of your physical needs. So there, there's a good and appropriate understanding of this that there's a physical component of God's blessing. You should seek the kingdom of God, as Matthew 6 says, but there is also, again for Paul, he like just can't mention it can't mention that there is a blessing without turning to what he has in Christ. And so, God will supply every need of yours. By what manner? Three quick prepositional phrases here. According to his riches, in glory, in Christ Jesus. So, what is it that God gives us in Christ? Let me flip you through a couple places just to to try and tease this out, and we'll come right back here because we'll end up in Colossians chapter 1, which is probably on the next page. But on our way there, uh, we're going to do a nice loop and get to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Right? This, is, this is the great grand inheritance that we have received in Christ. It is not just that He cares for our physical needs, though you should not uh, diminish that He does that. Far beyond caring for your physical needs, what else does Christ offer for you? 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Uh, let's jump back up to verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Have you, have you stopped to ponder the abundance of riches you have in Christ? It is not a little bit of blessing. It's not an allowance. It's an inheritance. Romans chapter 8. Keep going to the left in your Bible. Using one in the chairs, page 944. Let's 
starting in verse 31. This is that, that great grand conclusion of the salvation that you have in Christ, those first eight chapters of the book of Romans. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There is nothing that is good that God withholds from you, church. Do you believe that? Because we frequently behave as if we don't. And we're all right there. No, I'm, I, this is not a, a condemnation without introspection. I am right there with you. That we are, we are materialistic people. And we like to think, if only God had given me this or that thing. Or you can go even deeper. If God had given me that, that skill or that character trait or, or whatever it is that I need, I, I would be a better person. No, no, no. He has lavishly given you all good things. Do not think that you would have been able to handle more than you already have for His glory. One more. I've taken you to this passage quite a bit lately. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to keep going there. It's too good not to. First Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So when Paul starts to talk about generosity, he, he immediately goes, and God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory, in Christ Jesus. And immediately he starts with like your little physical needs and then he just, boom, expands that out to include all of the extravagant wealth of your salvation extravagant wealth. If you're here last week, at the end of service, you were told that one of our faithful attenders, Zach Kieser, who uh, sits in a wheelchair, normally about right there, second hour, had a, a cardiac arrest. And Zach had many conditions uh, throughout his life. Um, and he wasn't doing well. And last Monday, Zach went to be with the Lord. Young, bright guy. What do you think Zach knows about the glorious riches of the mercy of God right now? What joy must it be to receive the lavish wealth of an inheritance in Christ? What more could you ask for, church? And so as Paul turns to this group and said, you've been faithful in supplying the ministry and God will supply for you. And you know what? He has. 
He already has. He's not just going to supply to you your physical needs. He is going to give to you according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do we know what that glory means? And so often the truth is that we forget. You may have known at one time or you may have it buried deep down somewhere in your mind, but we need to be reminded of that great grand inheritance we received. Go back to Philippians 4, because uh, I want you to actually look at Colossians chapter 1 on this exact question. The language that Paul uses in Philippians 4 should point us immediately to, to something that he says in the first chapter of the book of Colossians. So I just want to take this, this brief tangent here to help us understand this, this shared memory that we've already been looking at that we need to have on these few prepositional phrases, right? According to his riches, in glory, in Christ Jesus. Paul uses very similar language in Colossians chapter 1. So if you look in verse 27 of the first chapter of Colossians, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, and here are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So a bunch of the same language there right away in quick succession. What is going on in, Philippians, or in Colossians chapter 1? Well, here, Paul is talking about his own ministry. And you'll see that that mention of the, the glory of God, the riches of His glory, that is Christ in you, our hope, what does he say immediately following? Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So here in Colossians 1, as Paul gets to that glorious riches of God type of language, he's reminding them, this is why I proclaim Christ. Because you forget. In fact, if you go back up to verse 25, he's talking about his own ministry, becoming a steward from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. Christians, we are forgetful. It is in our Lord's great infinite wisdom that He gives us communion so that we don't forget. And here, what we see from Paul in Colossians 1, that same reality is working through preaching, right? He is proclaiming, He is making the Word of God fully known. Why? So that the riches of the glory of the mystery that we have of the hope in Christ isn't missed. Don't miss this. Paul is longing, right, toiling with all of his energy. Why? To present the Colossians mature in Christ. How does he go about doing that? Proclaiming the whole Word of God. He makes this complete by proclamation of God's Word. The means by which God supplies the, the need of reminding and deepening and, and helping us savor the glorious riches we have in Christ is through His preached Word. I, I give all that to you to try and point out 
There's a reason why we give so much time when we gather to the opening and preaching of God's Word. This isn't just something that we've thought was really important and we kind of like doing it and it makes me feel better about having something to say, so let's give it 45 minutes every Sunday. The reason that we give so much effort to the preaching of the Word of God is because we're told to. To make the Word of God fully known. Why? So that you can, you and I and we as Christians can sit and savor and understand the riches of our inheritance that we have in Christ and that we can be presented as mature to Him. Alistair Begg says it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We, we are not the, the flashiest church that's ever been. I guarantee you there are trendier places you can find. The lighting's probably fancier. The, the, I don't know. The pastor's cooler. I, I'm sure those places exist. I'm sure their coffee is better. There's no way around. I'm willing to take all of our shortcomings as a church to say that we are a people who sit in humility to the preached Word of God. It's a big deal to us as a ministry that our goal here when we come together, we, we may drop the ball on some other things. We're going we're gonna to give a lot of effort to make sure that the proclamation of the whole Word of God is not missed. Why? Because that is how we become mature. That is how we savor in the glorious riches that we have in Christ. That is exactly what Paul is telling you. God is going to supply these things. How does he supply them? Through the preaching of his word. Through the fellowship of his body. Don't miss this. This gathering of his people to hear his word is not an insignificant thing that we've just made into a big deal. The fullness of God doesn't happen on accident. So, yeah, I'm sure we could, I don't know, become trendier in some ways. And I'm not, we're working to fix things that we don't do well, but never at the expense of the preached Word of God. That is a central element, component to this ministry that, that we as leadership walk around here and go, this is a big deal for us. If everything else goes, right, if we have to meet in the tent and the air conditioning doesn't work and the parking's bad, as long as the Word of God is guiding and controlling what we do, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with all of the other shortcomings if we make sure we don't miss on that one. All right. All of that in Colossians 1 to help fill in those gaps of the same language that we have in Philippians 4, that riches, that God supplying the riches of, uh, uh, in glory in Christ Jesus is the means by which we are presented mature. And how does Paul do that in Colossians through the proclamation of the whole Word of God. I want you, I want I, I want your kids and my kids and the generation to come in this church to have the Word of God fully known so that we can savor the extravagant wealth that we have been given in Christ. We can't do that if we don't understand it, if we don't grapple with it, if we don't sit in the glorious truth of what we have. Which brings us to the final point. 
if we share in a ministry and we share in an inheritance, we also share an ultimate goal. Right? This, this little brief benediction there, my God will supply every need in yours according to the riches in His in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. There is a shared end to all Christian labor. The glory of God. This is the context that we consider our shared ministry and our shared inheritance. They are all pointed towards the glory of God. Our generosity, even God's generosity, both exist to glorify God. Right? So you, you can see this in, in, our, or, or in God's generosity. You can go to Romans chapter 9. and he, the, the reason He has worked in the way that He has is so that He can display His glorious riches. Or actually, if you uh, flip over to Ephesians chapter 1, just a few pages to the left. Pay attention to what's about to happen here, that the reason God works these, these abundant riches, this glory of salvation that He gives to us in Christ, the reason ultimately for that salvation is not for you to be saved. It is for God to be glorified. Ephesians 1 and verse 11 in Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is guaranteed of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Church, you're saved because God receives glory by your salvation. Don't think too much of you in the salvation moment. Yes, you get to be in right relationship with Him. Yes, you are spared from eternal judgment. However, that is not the end. That is a means to an end. The end is the glory of God. That is why you have been saved. And so His generosity is for His glory, that ultimate end. Our generosity is also for His glory. So if we look back at the, the shared ministry that they have, that generosity that the Philippians give to Paul, you see, if you go to, to 2 Corinthians 9, right, that, the, the famous verse on this, each of you is to give as he has decided beforehand, not reluctantly or in compulsion. Why? For the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Again, please, I beg of you, do not give a dime if you are doing so reluctantly. Not interested in it. That's not why we're here. An obligated giver is legalism with a fresh coat of paint. That's not why this place exists. We, again, pass around a metaphorical plate so that you who have received the glorious riches from God can joyously give back from what He has given you. And if that is not how you give... If you are not giving to God's glory, then don't give it all. God has very deep pockets. He doesn't need yours. But you get to participate if you are so overjoyed with what He has done for you. 
That is the proper motivation of a biblical giver. It is to God's glory that we do all things. If you don't love to give, stop giving. We are not more worried about our bottom line than we are about your heart. The church doesn't exist to make money. If the church does exist to make money, then it has imported a mission from the pit of hell. And there are those places. But everything we do, we exist to glorify God. We give to glorify God. We sing to glorify God. We fellowship to glorify God. We pray to His glory. We receive sermons to His glory. It is the end for which all things are made. It is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. How can I live in a manner that brings all attention, all praise, all glory, not to me, but to God? T.S. Eliot, in his poem, The Murder in the Cathedral, has a great poetic line. The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. You have a reason for all things, church. And again, we can go to Colossians 3 and see that this is everything. There is not anything that you are to do that is not heartily for the Lord. As we close out this book of Philippians, you can go through any one of the imperatives in here. Any of these famous calls to not do anything out of selfish ambition, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for you to know nothing but Christ Jesus. All of that has at its underlying purpose God's glory. It is through those things that God is glorified. And as we understand the riches we have in Christ, we are grounded in why we go about doing those things. It is to His glory that we are saved. We gather together, we remember the work of Christ in salvation because we're so forgetful. We need to be reminded it is to the glory of God. So church, you have been given much in Christ. Go and live to His glory, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we ask for Your Spirit to sanctify our thinking. As we have sat in submission to your word, Lord, would you help us to think and behave accordingly? To your glory, God, we gather, we receive, we preach, we sing, we fellowship. It is all for you. Would you help us see where we are missing that mark and have the courage and boldness to correct it? We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.